for those of you who don't know who that is, that is uh, uh, Daniel Duran, and um, he is this week down in Mexico um, as part of our missions team there, and uh, I just have a remarkable amount of respect for him telling his story and being willing to be vulnerable and share some of his journey with us. Um, if you listen carefully, this is now like the fourth or fifth time I've listened to him speak. You know, that, that young man had a, um, has gone through a lot, um, and I, I, my life doesn't touch that in terms of uh, the level of, um, of, of suffering or adversity. You know, at two years old, his parents divorce. His dad pretty much steps away for 11 years, uh, pops back into his life and wants custody, doesn't want him to be a Christian, doesn't want him to come to Quest, doesn't want him to come to, to Levin. Um, there's this battle that ensues between the mom and dad, and, and the mom wins. We've been praying for him. And then, uh, of course, is his brother um, in that accident that he talked about passing away last November. That's just... That's a whole lot of stuff to go through. And yet, it's amazing is that all that stuff he went through, God has been reaching into this young man's life through relationships with Paulina and Tony and their staff. And, and to know now that this, man has a, this young man has a relationship with Jesus that's real and it's carrying him through is a, just a remarkable testament to the grace of God that's working amidst his adversity. And um, if there's one theme in his, his, uh, his video, it's that you know, he's, he's been through a lot. And, um, you know, I was reflecting on that and, and also praying for how are, where are we supposed to go with this momentum thing. And, and I, I realized that this morning um, we needed to talk about something that's difficult to talk about, but absolutely necessary to talk about, and that is whole, this whole idea of suffering and ad- adversity. Uh, historically, um, suffering is one of those things that either drives a person to God or away from God. We've seen it in our own congregation of people experience something horrific and then driven away because they believe that God wasn't loving in that moment. And so they, you know, they walk away. And um, I want to this morning, and because of that, I, I want us to look at what the Scripture teaches about this uh, thing called suffering and, and how we're supposed to, to view it differently than the world views it. Now, um, there's a reason why the Lord led um, me and my meditations upon this particular topic. One is, is that in this season of Parkway, we, there's been a lot of difficult things that people have had to deal with. And, um, and if you're not one of those people, then maybe you're one of, I don't know, a few who's experienced something 10 years ago that you're still wondering how to deal with. Um, and if you're in neither one of those categories, um, it is the better part of wisdom for you to prepare now as to how to see suffering and perceive it and experience it yourself as a Christian. Better to be prepared than caught off guard. So for that reason, I, I wanted to look at, at one of the texts that we meditated on on Wednesday, day 18, Romans chapter 5. I'm just going to look at two verses, 3 and 4. Uh, before I go there, though, you know, my mind uh, took me to, as I was thinking about this topic of suffering, took me to a book written by C.S. Lewis in one of the, uh, in the, in the series on, on Narnia, the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, it, the book in particular is one of those little-known, often unread books because it's, uh, I don't know, it just kind of gets lost amidst the rest. And the title of the book is uh, The Horse and His Boy. It's kind of awkward title. It usually would be like The Boy and His Horse, you know, but it's The Horse and His Boy. And it's, uh, it's book number five in this series. And, um, and there's, there's a truth contained in book number five that I've never forgotten. And it's kind of given me a visual on how to understand suffering. Now, for those who haven't read the book, and I'd 
be willing to bet most of you haven't read that particular book. If you hadn't, you know, those, those series of books are just as much for adults as they are for kids. Um, the, the basic short plot is it's about a journey that a, a young boy and a young girl take from a place of oppression um, up into the land of Narnia where there's hope. And the story covers all of the things they experience in their journey. And so there's this boy named Shasta, this girl named Erebus, and they're both riding these talking horses, you know, only in Narnia and only in, in the Chronicles of Narnia. And um, as they make their way from this place of oppression to Narnia, driven by the desire to escape, and also um, they wanted to let the king of Narnia know that you're going to be attacked, um, they experience these adversities along the way. Um, one of these adversities is they're, they're riding along on their horses, and all of a sudden there's this, this, this group of lions that start chasing them, and on their horse they run away and get away. And at another moment, they're in the tombs, and it's dark, and it, it feels scary even when you read the book, and all of these noises of beasts are, are heard around them. They get scared, and they take off. And, and then there's, um, skipping over a, whole, over a whole bunch of other little adversities, there's this one final moment in which they're being chased by a rather enormous lion. And, um, and the lion, lion is gaining on them, and they're on their horses, and they're running for their life. And, um, and this, this lion actually um, catches them, and, and uh, in the way that Lewis describes it, um, rears up on its hind haunches, and with its right paw, with f- uh, full uh, claws extended, swipes and hits Erebus, the young girl, on the shoulder. And she starts to bleed. This large lion has just lacerated her back. And then, strangely enough, the lion leaves. So their story is a story of adversity after adversity after adversity, chased by lions, the noises of of wild beasts, and then, of course, this final final encounter with the lion. Now, um, the story ends, as you'd expect, happy. Um, The girl doesn't die. Um, She ends up in Narnia and and things happy ever after. Um, But there's this moment in that journey where they meet Aslan. Uh, who, as you know, is the personification of Jesus. He's the lion. He's the king. And um, Aslan says something to them regarding their journey and their adversities that um, is worth uh, reading. I can't seem to advance this. Maybe you can. If not, I have a backup plan. I actually have the quote right here. All right, we're batting two for two this time. Um, so listen to this. Imagine all this adversity, right? Now, now listen. There, almost. One more. That way. To the right. Ah. Ah. Wonderful. He says, that's actually not it either. <laughs> there you go. I take back that. Oh, that was... After all this adversity, this is what he says. And this is the clarifying moment. And the best part of the book, in my opinion. He says, I was the lion. I was the one that reared up on my haunches and extended my claws, and I'm the one who lacerated Erebus' back. And Shasta gaped with open mouth, and you'd be like, what? Like, that was you? And said nothing, Aslan continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses a new strength of fear for the last mile uh, so that you should reach King Loon in time. He's saying, basically he's saying, in true Lewis form, saying that Aslan was there in each of those moments. 
He was there in those adversities, and he was the one who raised up his paw and lacerated Erebus's back. And you realize, I think what he's telling these young kids is that I was there protecting you, I was there preserving you, and I was there driving you forward. And I think that this is Lewis's way of teaching us about how God deals with us in our adversities. We oftentimes think that, that, that we're, we're left to the cold hand of fate, of dealt particular cards, unlucky, coincidental. And I think Lewis is teaching us through this, this story that that's not true. That God is there in those adversities. He is there. And his hand is working to protect and preserve and also to stimulate us to grow. And there are times when God, as hard as it may seem to think, will wound out of love, as uh, Aslan did. That's, that's, that's pretty insightful in, in his book. And I think that um, Paul in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4 Um, teaches us basically the same thing. Now, um, I'm going to read the first two verses, and then I'm going to pause, and then I'm going to come back to to verse 3. Because Paul wants to equip us to see suffering biblically in a way that is redemptive and not um, that doesn't cause us despair. All right, this is what he writes. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, stop right there. Now, this is a nice, tidy summation, past, present, and future, of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. You know, have been justified by faith. He's talking about a past action in which God, on the basis of what Jesus did at the cross, you know, transferred our sin to him, and he paid for it, and he transferred his righteousness to us so that God can look at us with full acceptance and say, you're beautiful, I love you, you're mine forever. That's justification. And on the basis of that past thing, he then speaks of the present, of now we have, because of that work, we have peace with God and full access to him. We don't have to be afraid of him anymore. There's no hostility. When we die, we know we're his, we're at peace, full access. That's the present reality based upon what Christ has done. And then He moves into the future talking about the hope. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which I think means looking forward to that day in which we see him face to face, radiant and glorified in resurrected bodies in a brand new radiant creation. That's that's the hope, rejoicing in the hope. So you see right here in these two verses, he's kind of compacting kind of the summary version of what God has done for us in Christ, past, present, and future. And at this point, you know, you could take any one of those three concepts, past, present, and future, you could write a whole ton of books on, the, on them, and books have been written on justification and so forth. Um, and to that we would say, you know, taking it into our heart, yes, Lord, you've done all of this. You've accomplished all of this for people who are broken and sinful. Um, and all you require of us is to trust in him, trust in your grace, trust what you have done. And we say, yay, God. But then... We hit verse 3, and he takes us in a radical turn that is unexpected, in which he says, and this caught me as I was thinking about it on Wednesday and praying over it. Um, I don't know if I can advance this yet. Uh, verse 3, there it is. He says, not only that, not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we rejoice in our sufferings. 
Now, if you've read this before, then that, you know, whatever. But, if, you know, if you're really processing what he's saying here, it should kind of throw you for a bit of a loop. He says, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, he used the same word talking about the hope of the glory of God, rejoice. And actually, you know, those, those two words are the same words in the original, and actually, literally translated, they mean to boast with gladness. Like, he says, we boast we glory in the hope of the glory of God. And I can understand that, you know? It's like, man, I'm looking forward to the new creation. I'm looking forward to a resurrection body that doesn't hurt anymore, that maybe Dan Deckard finally gets hair in his life, you know? Looking forward to those days. And seeing Jesus face to face and free from pain, free from suffering, free from tears and all that. You could boast in that. You could glory in that and rejoice in that to the point where people say, shut up. But then he uses the same words saying, not only that, but we rejoice, we boast with gladness in our sufferings. And it's like, what? Like, how, how, how does that work? Because you know what? The world we live in, by and large, does not rejoice in sufferings. That means Paul has tapped into something that is um, contrary to the way this world sees things. Now think for, with me for a moment on how the world responds to pain, suffering, and adversity. In a number of different ways, and this is not exhaustive, but one way is, is to fix it. There's pain, there's problem, there's adversity, fix it. That's usually our first response, take a pill, fix it. Um, and that itself is not a bad or wrong response um, to pray for God to heal or to seek medical healing, and hopefully you do those two together, praying and seeking medical help. But there are some pains and adversities that you can't fix. What do you do then? And you know, the fact of the matter is we are living in decaying, dying bodies, and you can't fix that. So how else do we respond if we can't fix it? Well, we respond, people respond, the world responds with um, attempts to escape, pleasures, drugs, alcohol, a way of escaping the painful reality. That's another way. Um, People complain. People become cynical about life. Life really isn't all that great. and They become bitter and sometimes blame other people, blame God. That's how the world responds, by and large, to pain and suffering. And Paul says, that's not how the follower of Jesus is supposed to respond to suffering. Um. And he is going to give us, if you will, just think of them as glasses, to see what we're going through differently than the world sees. The world sees, sees suffering through the dark glasses, of, dark glasses of disbelief. They don't believe God is there, and if he is there, he's certainly not good, and they see through these dark glasses. And Paul is going to say that you've got to have different glasses on your face. You've got to see it correctly, and so... He is going to give us those glasses. But before we look at those glasses, it's important, I think, to pause and remember that Paul is no stranger to pain himself. He's not like sitting in, an, in a comfortable ivory tower, isolated from pain, saying, hey, this is the, these are the glasses you need to wear. It's helpful maybe just to remember what he says. Skip the next slide. Um, when he writes about his own journey... And he writes, this is uh, 2 Corinthians 11, all the things that he went through. And you think, man, this guy had some massively bad luck if you don't believe 
in God's good providence. He said, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. That's five different beatings. Three times I was beaten with rods. So what, that's eight. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent adrift at sea. Treading water. A day. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Now that is a, that is a litany of bad news. You remember what happened at the end of Acts? I, I think it's actually probably rather humorous. You read it. At the end of the book of Acts, after the last shipwreck, you remember... He makes it to shore, and everybody on the boat makes it to shore, and they get up on, on the beach, and, and apparently they're cold because they build a bonfire, and Paul goes and grabs wood and puts it on the fire, and out of the wood jumps a viper and just bites him in the hand. You know, at the end of the long list, don't you think at that point you'd say, really? It, really? Like, like the right here just dangling snake from his hand. You know, I seriously didn't need one more thing. All that to say that he's speaking to us not as a stranger, but as someone whose life was embedded with these kinds of adversities. Like Aslan's claws were in his life, in a manner of speaking. So, what was the key, Paul? And he's trying to teach us what he's learned. Like, this is real. So now let's, let's go on to those glasses. Um, next slide. Am I in control of this thing now or no? I'm in control? I like control. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Um, verse 3, again, backing up. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And then there's a key word that follows. Knowing. Knowing. That is a brain word. It's a thought word having to do with perceptions of reality, the way we think, the way we process, the way we see things happening to us. Again, kind of a mental glasses that he's giving to us to see things with. Knowing that, see, it's not just uh, rejoicing in suffering itself. That would make you a masochist. No, it's we rejoice in sufferings knowing something of what they produce. So he says... Knowing that, and everything that follows that little word that there, is how we're supposed to see when things that are painful come into our lives, including things that we have initiated ourselves, unfortunately. He says, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because, and here's the kind of fundamental root why we can trust this process, and that is because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And God, we know God loves us. So now, let me, if you will, kind of unfold this with the use of three illustrations or three um, scenarios, that word endurance and character and hope. He says, where there's suffering... It produces a fruit, and that fruit is endurance. That is, if we see it with the proper glasses and trust the Lord in it, um, that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces, um, what's that next word there? Uh, Character of the heart, and then character produces 
an intensification of, of hope. So, so three images I want you to keep in mind. One of a marathon runner, one of a soldier, and one of an elderly lady in her 90s. The first one, marathon runner. Let's just say, for sake of argument, that, uh, that being a mature Christian is like being someone who's a marathon runner. And you want to grow, and so you're praying to the Lord, Lord, help me to find the strength to, to one day become a marathon runner. Um, give me the endurance and, and the muscles and everything I need to be able to run a marathon. And you pray that prayer because you want to be a mature Christian. And the next day, you go out for a walk on your, on your street, and, and you hear this snarling and biting, and you know that there's a big dog behind you. And you look behind you, and there is a, a pit bull just showing his teeth, and you know he's going to take a big chunk out of your calf muscle. But this particular pit bull only has three legs. And I'll tell you why in a second. By the way, they can bite, a three-legged pit bull can bite you just as hard as a four-legged pit bull. But you figure, I got a chance, actually, to, to outrun this thing because it's a pit bull with three legs. And so you just start booking it, and that three-legged pit bull is after you, just waiting to get a piece of your calf, but it's a three-legged pit bull. And so it, it doesn't actually have um, the ability to catch you. And after miles and miles of running, um, the pit bull gives up, three legs are tired, and and you're done. You're like, man, sure could have done without that today, you know? Could have done without the three-legged pit bull. Um, the next day, you decide you're going to go to work. Decide. You have to go to work. You get in your car, and you drive, and halfway there, you run out of gas in a place that has no cell coverage. No AAA. So you get out of your car. Still got to make it to work, even if you're going to be late. And so you do what you can. The only thing you can do, you hoof it three or four miles to the local gas station, and you get yourself a three, five-gallon gas can, fill it up, and you lug it all the way back to your car, thinking, man, this has been a difficult week. Then you get to the weekend, decide, hey, we're going to get away. And so you take the family up into the Sierras, up to a really nice campground, and, and uh, your four-year-old gets lost. Your four-year-old daughter gets lost. And you're like, oh, my gosh, i got to find my four-year-old daughter. And every father wants to find a kid, you know. And so you run all over the park. You're calling the ranger station, and you're looking for her. Finally, after just... An exhausting pursuit, you, you find her, and she's fine. You know, a difficult week being chased by a three-legged pit bull and, and uh, you know, running out of gas, and then your daughter getting lost. And I could see, and this is somewhat, I don't mean this to be glib, but, you know, at the end of that week, I could imagine someone saying, Lord, that, that really wasn't helpful. Like, that was a bad week. And I, I, I can picture the Lord much like Aslan in, in that opening seen, coming and saying, you know what? I was with that pit bull. And I made it with three legs for a reason. And um, I ordered you running out of gas. I ordered it in your life. And I'm also the one who allowed your daughter to go missing for a period of time. And you know what? Today you're a stronger runner because of it. That is through these different things that I sent your way and I was present in because I want you to be a marathon runner. I want you to be a mature Christian. That I sent them into your life as a means of grace. And in that way, looked at that way, you you realize that God brings these things to teach us to endure. That you're stronger the next event than you were the previous event. And God is building in us that heart of endurance, of perseverance. But it's not something that's formed in us apart from our experience. I think of the Holy Spirit taking the truth of the Bible and then 
weaving it into our, 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 our person through experiences like suffering. So it becomes ours. It changes us. So that's how suffering produces endurance. Now scenario two, soldier. Now talking to your, your new recruit, fresh out of boot camp, I'm talking about a crusty, seasoned uh, uh, soldier. And you know, the person that comes to my mind is Sergeant Major Plumley from We Were Soldiers. Um, if you haven't seen the movie, it's one of my favorite movies, not good for young audiences, but definitely a great movie. And, and in that movie, which is based on a true story, you meet this Sergeant Major Plumley, who's um, played by Sam Elliott. Perfect cast choice. And um, he represents the original, the true Sergeant Major Plumley, who, according to both the movie and history, um, made four, he was a paratrooper, a real bad dude, right? Uh, four combat jumps in World War II. And you think after that, he would retire. But he didn't. He entered into the Korean War, too, and made another combat jump in the Korean War. So five jumps all together. So this guy has seen adversity, he's seen battle, he's seen blood, and he's seen fighting. He's seen it up close, he's seen personal, he's seen people lost and die in his arms. That's, that's the kind of guy he was, because he experienced all that. So by the time you get to the yet third war, now with Viet- in Vietnam, um, this guy has had a seasoned career. Right? And uh, some of my, one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie of, of uh, We Were Soldiers is when, um, you know, all the, all the fresh recruits, the fresh soldiers showing up on the battlefield and a cameraman, um, they're all twitchy and nervous, you know, as the firefight begins to, to, to ensue. And, and the, the cameraman falls to the ground laying there. And remember Sergeant Major Plumley, you know, he's standing there, just not afraid of anything, like he's been here before and done it before. And there's no sense of fear or trepidation or bullets are whizzing by his head and, and there's shrapnel going everywhere. And he looks down at the cameraman and says, you ain't going to take many pictures laying down there, Sonny. You know, like get up off your butt and, and take some pictures. Like there's this, there's this sense of peace and of confidence in the middle of this mayhem. That's what you call character. It's when the inside of who you are has been forged in a way that whether you're living in times of peace or war, you're responding in the same way. Because it's who you are. It's character. It's been forged in you by all of the previous experiences of perseverance. There you have endurance leading to this forging of character. And that's what the Lord wants to do do and is doing in his people when you can see it through these glasses like this is what God's doing in my life and don't you want that in your life and he's appealing to our desire don't you want to be a person who endures and a person who is a crusty Christian in a positive sense battle hardened you're not afraid anymore how do you get there you're suffering and then the last scenario an elderly woman in her 90s she too has had a difficult life. You notice the connection point is suffering in each of these. Early in her life, her and her husband um, mourn the fact that their firstborn son walks away from the Lord. Heartbroken. And some of you know what that's like. And yet she still trusted in the Lord and endured. After 50 years of marriage, she watched her husband that she loved pass away, leaving her alone for the next 30 years in her life. And yet, she still trusted in the Lord, and she still endured. 
In her 70s, she was declared legally blind and couldn't read and couldn't drive, dependent upon other people, and yet she continued to trust in the Lord and endure. And her heart, through this endurance, learned that sense of character, courage, and peace because she trusted in the Lord over the long haul. And then her 80s comes down with lymphoma and needs chemotherapy in her 80s of all. And then in her 90s, growing old, she has this um, glorious sense of hope that comes from two things. One, she has seen this world unmasked for what it is. It's fleeting. It is a painful and broken world. And only suffering can wear that away and take away that false mask as to what life really is about. At the same time, because she trusted in the Lord and learned endurance and she has seen this character forged in her, her hope for seeing Jesus and hope of the day of resurrection and the day in which you know, she hears his voice call to the graves and, and rise God's people up, raise them up and, and to inherit a new creation. She burns with that sense of hope. And that's one of the things that, that suffering does. It intensifies the hope of faith. As you see the world for what it really is, it's a broken place. It's not a place you can hold on to, but she's seen Christ, and she's seen um, and understood and tasted of his love, and that's what she wants more than anything, and her hope is intensified. You see how, how, how it works? It's really not rocket science. The simple f- fact is that God brings those things into our life, and it has a purpose. It's not a matter of fate or you being dealt cards by the cold hand of fate. As much as the world may view it that way, that's not how we as Christians are supposed to view it. Because we believe in a God who, is, who rules in the, the world, including all of the difficult things. And because we believe his heart is good and is loving, then we can trust that he's doing stuff in us. Just like Paul said, these are the glasses you wear. God is working in your soul through these things. And to be able to see... In those adversities, and and I bet you can name some of them in your own life, to be able to see that in it is the hand of Aslan. In it is the presence of the Lord. And make no mistake about it, the Lord does not call you or take you through anything he himself has not already gone through times a million. That's why Jesus can sympathize with us because he has breathed our air. He has walked our road. He has been in our shoes. He has felt the full weight of abandonment and betrayal and lacerations and brutal beatings. He knows. And that's not to say that in our experience of it, there is not a sense of, 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 of real pain. I mean, Jesus, in the night he was betrayed, he said, man, I am overwhelmed to the point of death. It doesn't mean it's not going to be heavy or it's going to be easy. It just it means that God provides joy in the midst when we can see it for what it is and, and, and continue to look through these glasses that the Bible equips us with. To know that God is in it, he is good, and he's doing things in your soul. He's, he's making that marathon runner and that crusty soldier and that, that elderly woman who burns with hope. That's what he's doing in our souls. So... I guess it comes to, how, how, how is it that you're going to view suffering? Ten years ago? Right now? Or when it comes? Because it will come. 
These are the glasses that God is providing you to see things so that you can actually rejoice in your sufferings and not find yourself driven away from God, but actually driven to him. So what are, you, what are you doing with yours, and which glasses are you wearing this morning? You recognize, based upon the infallible witness of Scripture itself, spoken by a man who went through all the stuff that we just read, he's saying, wear these glasses. God is gracious, graciously at work in your life, and even though you can't fully understand why, here's one little piece that you can understand. You're learning endurance, and you're seeing your character forged, and your hope intensified. Will you take a, just a, a moment this morning? And again, I, 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 levels of uh, pain in this room vary from degree to degree. I want you to know that the Lord is careful in his calculations as to how much you can handle. I picture him up there with a teaspoon knowing, hey, can, Dan Decker can only handle so much. I, I want him to grow, though. And other people are stronger than me, so he dishes out a tablespoon and, Whatever it is, you just need to trust that the Lord is good and he's doing things in your soul. Will you take a moment to say, Lord, um, I want to wear these glasses and I want to be able to rejoice in my sufferings knowing that you're behind these sufferings in a loving way. Will you take a moment to yield that to the Lord and just surrender it to the Lord and and then I'll close in prayer and we'll um, sing the final two songs.